Hello and welcome to Ditch Finvox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. My guest today is Ben Quinlan of Quinlan & Associates. His firm has put out a report arguing that incumbent insurers are really at risk of being left behind by the rise of virtual insurers in Hong Kong. I spoke with Ben about many of the assumptions underlying his report to understand where is Hong Kong's insurance industry headed. Ben Quinlan, welcome back to Digifin Box. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Um, so this came up. Uh, you, Quinlan Associates, just put out a report about uh, insurance in Hong Kong. Uh, you're basically making the case that uh, it's now time for the main carriers to really get serious about going direct to policyholders rather than intermediaries. What's going yes. on? Um, well, I mean, the stats are pretty compelling. If you look at the Hong Kong insurance industry, it's long been dominated by the use of intermediaries, uh, by the incumbent insurers. Um, and if you look pre-COVID, 99% of policies uh, sold in Hong Kong were distributed by agents, brokers, or bank insurers. So there's this complete mismatch or detachment of the insurance uh, insurers from their actual end customers. And this, I would say, you know, extreme reliance on intermediaries to actually drive the distribution efforts. Now, why does this matter? Uh, first problem associated with that is these huge payaways that the insurance companies are making. We actually estimate that about 61 billion Hong Kong dollars was paid to intermediaries in 2021. Um, and that excludes the actual upfront payments made to the banks to establish those bank insurance partnerships, as well as all these indirect sales support costs, which we estimate at about three and a half billion Hong Kong a year. Um, there's a whole bunch of other problems, but happy to unpack that. But as the first problem, just that payaway in and of itself is vast. But, okay, so there obviously bank, uh, insurance companies, they're either paying banks to get on their shelf and be a preferred partner in their wealth management and distribution efforts, or they are working through agents, usually tied, but often a uh, third party as well. At the same time, these things bring revenues in. Now, in, in Hong Kong's case, a lot of the revenues have collapsed on the agency side because so many of the customers uh, for life insurance policies were mainland Chinese who would come here and buy policies and when the borders shut. For many companies yep. that depended on that, um, that was a huge blow. Um, but there are other ways that they make money. Um, MPF is a big mainstay for, uh, you know, those providers that are in that game, um, such as, you know, Manulife or AIA. So mm -hmm. uh, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, there's a cost, but at the same time, those costs generate, at least up until, up until COVID, generated uh, quite substantial revenues and, and profits for the big players. Yeah, they did. But I mean, I, I think times are revolving. So if you look at how much revenues have come off during COVID, roughly about 10% in terms of total premiums. So I, I think there has been a shift, especially with a lot of the people I know in the insurance industry, to focus on penetrating more into the local Hong Kong client base. And you're right about the, you know mainland clientele being the primary source of customers. But also during COVID, what people didn't know, from 2018 to 2022, uh, the number of agents actually grew by about 10%. Um, a lot of people don't know there, there are 105,000 agents in Hong Kong. Just to put that in perspective, one out of every 30 
26 people employed in Hong Kong is an agent. And the reality is the education barriers, the licensing barriers, and the training requirements for a lot of these agents are relatively low. And during that period of COVID, you actually saw the number of customer complaints to the insurance authority more than doubling over that two-year period. There was a lot of cases of mis-selling, of twisting, fraud, forgery, and this had very real consequences to insurance companies, both in terms of their financial impact, as well as the reputational damage uh, that this causes. I think some of them are trying to revamp their agency networks. They realize that they have a lot of low-quality agents, and it's not just in Hong Kong. Um, and they're using digital tools as one way to help find those agents that really know how to operate. So during COVID, there were those that kind of, you know, the wheat from the chaff, those that were became good at replacing face-to-face -face with um, Facebook connections or, yeah. or other ways to sort of engage with people. Um, and, and then, of course, you want to, you know, identify those and then you want to leverage on top of those. Um, are, are you seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We basically um, are seeing a lot of the incumbents focusing their digital transformation efforts on two things, either their back end or on the front end, it's digitally enabling their agents. And most of them are doing this via integrated online portals. So for example, Prudential has the virtual sales platform. AIA has an online portal for agents. You have FWD, Agent Assist, a lot of these different models coming out. However, I think we were joking internally that this is like, you know, buying a, a better buggy whip for your horse as opposed to buying a car. Um, there's cost implications, development costs, training costs associated with that, as well as the maintenance costs associated with these platforms. And they don't actually address the issues of the payaways, the reputational risks. And probably the most important thing is there is an absence of direct relationship with the insurance company and the end customer. Now, why does this matter? If you don't have that direct relationship, a lot of information and data is getting lost from the customer uh, to the insurer. Uh, and as a result of that, limited information provision, limited information exchange, um, all of this has impacts on the ability to understand the customer, get better insight. Um, it also impacts risk assessment, uh, particularly in terms of underwriting. And if the insurer doesn't have the visibility and relies primarily on the intermediary, then they just have to trust them to find the relevant cross and upselling opportunities. And again, going back to the point I made, vast pool of low quality agents, uh, I, I'm not that bullish on it. What is the uh, extent to which insurers are using their own apps to try to create some of that engagement? Well, we're seeing it a lot more uh, in the West. I, I mean, Hong Kong has been really slow, but even when you're looking at the apps in direct kind of penetration rates, particularly on the sales side, yeah, it's taken off a lot uh, in the UK and in the US. So the US, I think online distribution now accounts for about 21% of total premiums, uh, up from about 13 in 2019. And the UK is uh, nearing about 30%. So there's a lot going on there. And I think beyond the apps, you're actually seeing a, a lot more gravitation of Hong Kong customers 
towards the compare and contrast platform. So one of the case studies that we bring out is the uh, the example of Ten Life, which saw the number of users um, basically skyrocket from about two million to about six million uh, from 2020 to 2022. So a lot more people are wanting to go and research and and purchase policies online. I think about 60 percent of Hong Kong customers are willing to do this. Um, so you know the the notions that insurance is an inherently complex product uh, is actually not always true. And you know the proof is in the pudding with the growth of the new virtual insurers in Hong Kong. We've seen a lot of momentum over the past few years since they've been launched. What is the need for insurance companies to have that firsthand data on policyholders if they can successfully sell via either agents or banks? Um, I mean, I, I guess if I was in the incumbent shoe, I'd be thinking, well, it's worked for me so far. Uh, what am I missing? Well, I mean, th this is the whole logic behind it. There is a there is a view that if it, if it works, then keep doing it. But I mean, you can look at every other business model that has gone through the disruptive change. We've even seen it with the virtual banks, this mass gravitation of customers who are much more digitally savvy, who, who have much more of a DIY mindset and don't actually need an agent. If I ask most people in Hong Kong, they don't like agents and they don't look at agents as people that fundamentally guide them to the best decisions. Now, of course, I can't say this carte blanche for everyone, but there is a huge dissatisfaction towards the agents in the market, given there are that many. Um, so the reality is you can move to a much more seamless process, make this engagement uh, far better than what you would see by using an agent. And I think the critical thing is for the end customer, you can bring the cost of these premiums down. And if you compare the premium charges being levied by the, the virtual insurers to that of the incumbents on the comparable products, you're looking at discounts of 30, 40, up to 45%. So ultimately for the end customer, they will talk with their feet. And uh, I believe you will see as we you know, demonstrated, there was this eightfold growth in premiums, albeit starting from a very low base for the virtual insurers uh, from 2020 to 21. You did not see that kind of comparable growth uh, within the incumbents. The model has limited room to grow. If I'm an incumbent, uh, is my instinct rather that in trying to mimic um, one of, you know, say a one degree or a bow tie, uh, is my, my impulse going to be, well, if I move away from agents, then I have to completely change my product set um, and I can't generate the fat margins I've enjoyed on adding riders, complexity, throwing in the kitchen sink into policies uh, and, and charging for that. I agree. And I don't think any incumbent insurer in Hong Kong is just going to wake up tomorrow and say, let's move full digital distribution. Uh, let's go direct to the consumer. There's a lot of inertia in this industry. I've spoken with the insurance CEOs and I can I can tell you verbatim that I've been told we don't want to ostracize or piss off our, our agents. Right. Because they're, they're, scared so of, they're terrified of that because that's the that's where the gold's come from. Of course, of course. But the reality is, you know, this isn't like a, a, a binary decision between turning it on and off. 
there is a view to work out, well, are there certain product sets that we're offering where we don't have to get an agent to go out and push it? And it doesn't make sense from, from the size of the actual premiums. Like you've seen some of these virtual insurers pick up pockets of opportunities like in pet insurance, um, you know, in, in smaller life policies where you don't have to have all of that, uh, you know, handholding throughout the process. And again, like the question is, is the handholding of an agent who isn't necessarily very capable, that much of a better customer experience than moving to something digital, which is really seamless, efficient, and speaks to the end customer, particularly as all of our brains are rewired to think digitally. So um, look, I, I think that the, the journey, and that's the key word, it's not going to be something that happens overnight. I think it will be more of a gradual process where insurance companies need to pick their battles and understand that the unit economics and the margin pay away that they're giving as a result of maintaining these relationships is probably not very sustainable for the long term, particularly as the disruptors show them very clearly that this can be done without the use of human intermediaries. What is the, uh, we talked about fear of scaring the agents into rebellion as, as one uh, hurdle or impediment to this, to the kind of change you're talking about, Ben. Another could just be that the tech stacks are, are legacy uh, and you're dealing with global insurers um, and they have legacy tech stacks littered around the region and, and sometimes the world. So is that also something that's holding them back? I mean, is this something that will, do you, do you have any, any sense that there will be any acceleration on how they, they review and, and change uh, the systems that they've been using for decades? Look, I think it's a very fair point. And I think the reality is when you're looking at doing this, it's, you know, you can either think about a migration process and an evolution from legacy to new, which is always going to be painful and always going to be met with resistance. Or you can think about a carve out approach where you take particular focus areas, which maybe the insurance company is not doing now and building that distribution proposition and product offering within that natively. And there is an opportunity to move in that direction. We And we think that is the appropriate way to go. It's kind of winding down legacy parts of the business and working out how to set it up on a more native platform. Um, and of course, every, every insurance company is going to have their own way of thinking uh, to go about this. But Again, we, we haven't seen anyone really pinpoint this uh, problem to the degree that we have. And ultimately, when we take a step back and say, why is this so fundamentally skewed in Hong Kong? There is a clear cultural mindset where it's been easy to, to adopt this very intermediary-led approach. But it's been proven in so many other markets that this approach is is declining right there and we're very adamant not everything can be sold online it's it we're not saying that and there's no case for it whatsoever but to to literally put it in perspective as i said less than one percent sold digitally i mean it does kind of sit in stark contrast to markets where 30 percent of the premiums are being routed through direct to consumer digital channels so you know if you argue there's no business case look elsewhere but there are cultural impediments, there are kind of mindset shifts, and there is a broader customer education process needed to make this happen. Um, and one of the good examples that we draw out is actually with Bowtie, right? Because I think when Bowtie first started, they actually went on their journey and they found acquiring customers from the incumbents quite difficult. So they 
created their own blog, integrated it in health, lifestyle. And, you know, these public education efforts have been extremely successful because now they have 2 million plus monthly visitors in terms of organic traffic on their website. So they're making the content relevant and they're making it interesting and they're making insurance, which has often been seen as very complex and you need to speak to a human, much more simple. And a lot of insurance products are. What is the risk that with COVID restrictions in Hong Kong and mainland China now being relaxed, that it will just be back to face-to-face -to -face and insurance incumbents will say, well, we can we can go back to having our agents uh, go source uh, customers again? I think that's a very, very real risk. And part of the part of the journey is very much along the lines of, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And we're putting forward a case that it is broken or there are problems with it. Now, I can have any insurance executive come to me and say, Ben, there'll be problems with the digital direct model, right? And if we move to that model, we're going to lose a lot of customers in the in the process. But again, it's not like flicking a switch, right? There, there is a a process to go about. And if I draw an analogy or a comparison uh, to that of the, the virtual banks in Hong Kong, we haven't seen you know, the, the, the incumbent banks sit there and say, oh, we're not going to do this, right? Every incumbent has realized the need to you know, get their act together when it comes to digital. I think insurance companies have a little bit more luxury and a little bit of a moat, which goes back to the title of the report we wrote from push to pull. Insurance products are push products. They're not natural pull products. But again, picking up on that very simple example of bow tie, if you can pull 2 million people into your website every month through creating content that ultimately ties to selling an insurance product, that's an important part of the journey. And I think the customer education piece has been done very poorly because it's been left up to these agents in all history of Hong Kong and relying on the quality of them to deliver the right insights and sell the products in the right way. Again, we, we've called out very clearly that it hasn't always worked. We've seen some of the big insurers uh, respond to the loss of mainland uh, retail business, pivot to bank assurance. Uh, mm -hmm. that seems to be something that they are quite comfortable with if they have the right tie-up. Yes, it costs them money, but that seems to be a, a fairly reliable growth area for, for them. How much of bank assurance can, I guess, uh, either give them the breathing space or simply substitute for uh, the, the business that they might be losing on the agency side? I don't think it's going to make up for all of it. I think the, the, the fact is bank assurance relationships usually come with the upfront costs you know, so that's the big challenge. The other side of it is when you look at a typical uh, bank or a relationship manager, insurance is generally not a priority one product, right? There's a lot of products on the shelf of the bank that, with, that they can look to sell. Now, of course, as part of the distribution relationship, there will be some kind of KPI for the bank to push that uh, insurance product to ensure they hit some form of target so there is an ROI on that investment. But, I mean, Jane, if I ask you the same question, how many times have you been to your banker or your bank and have they brought up the idea of you buying insurance? I, it's never occurred. In well, the well, what they do is what, what they do is if you walk into one of these is they will start selling you um, investment link products. Sure. That's very popular. That's that's right. And that's that's where you see the convergence in the IELTS space between insurance and wealth. And that that's ultimately where we see more of the growth. And if you look at our 
kind of view of where there is a bullish growth story. Uh, the wealth story in Hong Kong is one because there's a ton of idle deposits sitting on the bank accounts of retail customers in Hong Kong. You know, we we often call out like an HSBC average retail balance of 485,000 honky cash, Bank of China over half a million. I mean, these are big numbers for retail. So I do agree the ILP space has room to grow, but it's probably about 10 to 15% of the total uh, insurance premium pool globally. So much more room to grow in a market like Hong Kong. And if I look at, I guess, where there is going to be insulation or protection of this, you'll probably see it more with the brokers than the actual agents. So the broker model, which is working directly with the private banks, that's very much about enablement, not trying to bypass the relationship, provide the concierge service. This will still continue to take place because when you're you're signing policies which are 10, 20, 50, 100 million dollars US in size. You're not necessarily just going to do that by pressing buttons online. No. Uh, one area where we've seen uh, incumbents take more of an initiative, I think, is with the health side, telemedicine, telehealth, um, AIA with uh, Vital uh, Vitaly. Uh, telematics, right? So measuring, uh, you know, rewards if you walk so many steps or you complete some sort of exercise, that sort of thing. Do you see that, you know, um, do you see that kind of business succeeding? Is that getting the results that insurance companies are looking for? Um, I, I think it's a bit too early to say. I think the idea is fantastic. Encourage good lifestyle behaviors and as an end customer, be rewarded by paying lower premiums or maybe getting rebates, discounts in future uh, for other policies that you want to buy. So I think the the whole the whole idea behind it is is very clever. Um, but as for whether that will fundamentally change behaviors, we've even seen that with auto, right? You can put the GPS trackers to track how fast, how aggressively you drive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's definitely a move in the right direction because in an, in an environment where underwriters were typically asking very archaic questions and things that would make it really hard to establish more appropriate risk assessment, I think these the use of these alternative data points, uh, especially through IoT devices, is is really um, I, I would say a revolution for the way that insurance can be done and and should be done in future. Last question for you, Ben, and thanks for your time today. What is the risk to the digital insurers that as face to face re resumes and people have less time or perhaps less inclination to spend a lot of time on their their phones and might be out and about a bit more um you know do do companies like bowtie that have relied on this steady stream of content uh are, are they at risk of seeing a slowdown well i think that depends because i think if i go back to our situation in hong kong many of us would ideally like to speak to humans again we're naturally social creatures whether you're an extrovert or an introvert but I also think that prolonged period of social isolation and gravitation towards online tools has rewired the way we think and do things. Uh, just because things are open in Hong Kong, I'm not just jumping to go to my bank, for example, right? I can do everything on my phone. You mean the, bank, the, the, bank, the, bank, the bank was not your first priority uh, over going to the bar? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not high on my priority list. Okay. So and I think that is a valid point, but I think it's only really valid for what I would call really large policies and premium payments. I think 
in that end of town, sure. Uh, especially for more complex insurance products where, you know, sitting down with an individual and an expert who can navigate a lot of the nuances and, you know, highlight things that are not so easy to understand, maybe from reading up yourself, um, that I agree is important. But again, look at the other benefit. The one thing that I told you, if it's that easy, that intuitive, and that much cheaper, I'm talking 30 plus percent discount on average to a traditional policy, my bet is that the Hong Kong consumer, consumer goes for the deal. And as soon as people are aware that these deals are that much cheaper and you can get that much off, and if I know I can get cheaper auto, cheaper medical, cheaper whatnot, I'm not going to go for seeing an agent to pay more. Uh, I know personally I'm going to go for the best deal as long as the policies are comparable and like for like. Great. Well, I think we'll end it there, Ben. Thanks for your time. We've seen the past few years the rise of these virtual insurers. Uh, I've been impressed by some of the numbers they've been able to achieve. Um, and I think the next phase now will be uh, whether or not the incumbents are going to really take them on in their in, in that digital arena full on or if it's going to remain uh, two separate conversations. Indeed, it's going to be an interesting few years ahead to see how this all plays out. Great. Thanks for your time today, Ben. Thanks, Jane. Appreciate you having me.